This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Around the world, nearly everywhere but the U.S., May 1st is a big deal. It's called International Workers' Day or May Day. Here in the U.S., it's called Next Sunday. In a way, the American worker last year revived International Workers' Day's American roots. We did create it, after all. A few years ago, we spoke with Donna Haverty Stack, a professor of history at Hunter College at the City University of New York. She's also the author of America's Forgotten Holiday, May Day and Nationalism, 1867 to 1960. She began the story in 1886. Labor unions had been fighting for the eight-hour workday for years and years, but they'd only won battles city by city. They needed a new strategy. This was the era of the Second Industrial Revolution, the rise of corporate capitalism. They needed to come together, and so that was the goal for 1886. Why did these labor unions, going for that big push, choose May 1st? For the building trades, May 1st was the date when the annual contracts were renewed. The goal was they begin organizing in 1884, making demands. Hopefully, they would succeed and they would celebrate on May 1st, 1886. If they did not succeed, they held out the threat of striking on May 1st, 1886, which in many cases happened. Once that date was chosen, the more traditional trade unionists and the anarchists and socialists who have a broader revolutionary goals also tap into the associations of May Day with the spring rites, with gathering flowers, with bringing in the green, with... What do the spring rites have to do with labor? Nothing. But, <laughs> but, but, but they use it in their iconography, in poetry, in plays, and things that become central to the annual anniversary. So now it's May 1st, 1886... 80,000 people march in Chicago, 30,000 in Baltimore. How many in New York? 30,000 in New York. St. Louis, Baltimore, Akron, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, all across the country workers came out. Union leaders giving speeches and anarchists, Albert Parsons, well-known anarchist in Chicago, uh, was at the head of the march with his wife, Lucy Parsons. They almost didn't participate because in initially when they heard of this movement, for the eight-hour day, they felt it was too, too, small. too small, not what they really wanted, which was revolution. But when they saw the momentum, they realized that's where the workers were. They needed to be out in front of it, <laughs> at the front of the parade. But 
it's the anarchists that get even more closely associated with it. Even in our editorial meeting when we were discussing this, someone raised the Haymarket Affair that happened a few days after May Day. You note that that association is a manipulation. It's purposefully wrong. It was a peaceful protest in Haymarket Square in Chicago, organized by local anarchists in response to the police killings of six strikers on May 3rd. And initially, I think about a thousand people gathered. And as the evening wore on and it started to rain, their numbers dwindled down to about 300. One of the anarchists was speaking on a wagon. And when the police came into the square to order the meeting to disband. There was concern that some of the speech may have been inflammatory. Someone threw a bomb into the square. The bomb killed one police officer immediately. Six other policemen died subsequently of their wounds, most likely from the bullets. The police began firing indiscriminately. Eight anarchists were arrested and tried and convicted for conspiracy, four of whom were executed, and they became martyrs to the anarchist cause. It seemed to prove the anarchists right about the oppressive nature of the state. So it was the anarchists that tried to link the two events. The anarchists conflated the two. Socialists embraced that as well because I think they shared a concern about the reactionary nature of the state, and if it were not won over by workers. Workers would never find justice. And for socialists, that would was to be achieved through the ballot. For anarchists, that was to be achieved through revolution, possibly acts of direct violence, depending on which anarchist group you're looking at. There was sympathy and support for the anarchists in that moment. Samuel Gompers came out to their defense. He became the head of the American Federation of Labor in December 1886. But Gompers and the AFL and the craft unions that became affiliated with that quickly came to realize that the association with May 1st and Haymarket didn't necessarily help them advance their goals because they were attempting to get public support for the existence of unions. Mm -hmm. And so it was very easy for employers and more conservative Americans to smear the labor movement as illegitimate by associating it with the anarchists. May Day itself seemed to have become associated with red organizations, communism. Many might have guessed that the entire holiday was invented in Moscow. Yes, exactly. May 1st takes on an international component earlier than you might think. In 1889, when socialists are meeting in Paris, representatives from the AFL attended and spoke about the great success of May 1st, 1886. Even though it didn't secure the eight-hour day forever, the struggle continued. Pulling workers together in a united demand was appealing to the socialists in Europe. And they said, you know what? Starting in 1890, we're going to do the same thing. And European socialists began to use May Day, May 1st, for their labor demands. And so it continues to this day, unlike here. Exactly. By 1903, The AFL doesn't want to go near May Day with a 10-foot pole. It's been urging its members to turn out instead on the September Labor Day. So what's the difference between May Day and Labor Day? Hmm. Well, May Day was becoming known as International Workers' Day in the 1890s. Labor Day began in 1882 here in New York, launched by Matthew McGuire, 
who was a uh, machinist and a socialist from Brooklyn who had a very radical vision. So it was a precursor yes. to May yes. Day. It had nothing to do with the eight-hour day. It had, in, in essence, a more broader utopian vision. It starts out radical, but the AFL rises, and it takes over this event and shapes it to suit its own goals. But how did its message differ from May Day? The AFL termed Labor Day, Labor's National Day. There was very much an emphasis on the national connection, that these workers who turned out on Labor Day were patriotic, were American. And it becomes part of the the AFL distancing itself from May Day, which was becoming known as International Workers' Day. There's another holiday that we roundly ignore that is marked on May 1st. That's Loyalty Day. Mm -hmm. Loyalty Day emerges... Post-World War II, May 1st is chosen specifically to counter any attempts to revive radical May Day demonstrations. So coming out of the war, the veterans of foreign wars took the lead in sponsoring Loyalty Day demonstrations. They were supported by different fraternal organizations, the Catholic Church, John Birch Society, and spoke in the newspaper coverage of how they were seeking to walk the communists off the streets. They worked with city officials to have the supporters of Loyalty Day get the parade permits for a good chunk of the day. The Communist Party did hold parades, but they were later in the day and they were smaller. And Mm -hmm. so Loyalty Day becomes a part of the way in which the history of May Day in the United States is forgotten. It's a part of the story of this construction of a Cold War Americanism. How long does it last? By the mid-50s, the Communist Party and the left-led unions dwindled in size and in strength due to a number of assaults during the Second Red Scare, the prosecution of the Communist Party leaders under the Smith Act in 1949. And so they didn't take to the streets, so there was no need to counter them. Right. And the the workers in the left-led unions really struggled with this. I have really dramatic accounts of workers in District 65 here in New York, which was a union that was left-led and had ties to the Communist Party. and What did they do? Retail, wholesale, and uh, warehouse workers. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a really moving account. In 1946, District 65 workers were holding a meeting and they were debating, you know, can we continue to support these May Day parades? You know, the union was facing pressures on all sides to purge its ranks of communists, certainly by... 1947, with the Taft-Hartley Act, which required union leaders to sign an affidavit swearing they were not communists. And if they didn't, the union would not have access to the National Labor Relations Board. That put tremendous pressure on these left-led unions. But one worker said at this meeting, most labor people know that May Day started in America. Therefore, I think that we should study more about these May Day parades and labor history and make sure that we know before we can accuse ourselves and our labor of following some foreign ideology or stuff like that. I think that May Day is our day, and we have to point out to the wealthy people in America that we are united and we will stop them from exploiting us. Hmm. And so there was real passion. I mean, these workers had that memory, and they hadn't lost it yet in the late 40s. If we go back to the 1880s, really just after the Civil War maybe, there was the struggle to define what it means to be American, what it means to be loyal, Mm. what it means to be patriotic. Yes. May Day existed in that context from the very beginning. The decision on the part of workers and radicals of what they're carrying in their parades 
when it came specifically to what flags they are carrying, is very revealing. Some of them were navigating a hybrid radical American identity. They didn't want to cede control over what the Stars and Stripes meant to employers, to opponents of organized labor. They staunchly defended their right to carry the American flag with their red flags. You see the Socialist Labor Party members in New York in the 1890s passing resolutions that they were going to carry the American flag into Union Square. Some just wanted to carry the red flag. But you see their desire to claim that flag in an era where In 1893, Flag Day becomes a holiday. The Pledge of Allegiance attempts in public schools to assimilate children of immigrants, anxiety over immigration with some 25 million immigrants coming to the United States between 1865 and 1920. These workers and these radicals are smack in the middle of that story because they are mostly immigrants. (laughs) You were talking about the Socialist Party in New York. Morris Hillquit was the leader of the Socialist Party at the time. He wrote an editorial that was published in The Call, the Socialist Party newspaper, responding to criticisms launched at the Socialist Party. Critics who said, how dare they? How dare those socialists carry the stars and stripes alongside the red flag? The red flag is the flag of bloodshed and violence. And Hillquit retorted, the red flag is the flag of brotherhood and that we have a right to carry the stars and stripes. And it's those who are criticizing us, who long pawns the stars to the trusts and monopolies and that their stripes were the stripes of prison garb. And the black flag of the pirate was a more appropriate emblem for them. (laughs) Their carrying the American flag didn't mean they were subscribing to the more mainstream notion of the flag as an unquestioned loyalty to the country. They were carrying it with the goal of trying to make America be true to itself, their understanding of what that meant, that the revolution of 1776 needed to be extended into the economic sphere. They actually felt a duty, in a way, to carry the flag. We've seen a wave of teacher strikes around the country, a pushback to years of education budget cuts. I think a lot of us were surprised when we learned that teachers can only legally strike in 13 states. Right. Does this recent round of strikes resonate somehow with the past? The echoes I hear are of the great disparity between the rich and the poor. We talk about being in the second Gilded Age before the Progressive Era, before the New Deal protections. Now we're on the other side of attempts to dismantle the New Deal. We're back in a period where I think maybe workers are finding that coming together, demonstrating their militancy and their solidarity is important, just as those workers in 1884 realized that they couldn't fight this in a case-by-case basis when you're up against large corporate powers and monopoly, you know, similar language that you hear, similar concerns circling back again now. If that's the case, do you think that with this current resurgence, some American workers may find themselves linking up with May Day again? Possibly. It may come to serve their agenda more successfully. Since there is a growing awareness in certain sectors of the labor movement of the need to address capitalism globally, however that might take shape. Maybe it is coming together on May 1st in solidarity. You have yet to see a concerted effort among labor unions in the United States to revive May Day to where it once had been. But, you know, younger generations are learning that history through connecting up with older generations who have the memory of what May Day meant. It can become a usable past again. When we talk about this perpetual perennial argument over what is patriotism, think about 
Aaron Copland, our mm. quintessential American composer who was wrestling with the issue of patriotism all the time, theme for the common man. Yes. He even wrote a song called Into the Streets on May 1st. Mm. So could you see the tug of war over May 1st, whether it's a loyalty day or a day for labor, a tug of war over America's identity? I do think you're right. May Day became a bit of a lightning rod around this central issue of who has a right to consider themselves American and who has a right to define what that means. And I say in my book that, you know, these workers who wanted to carry both the American flag and the red flag, they didn't need the daughters of the American Revolution telling them what that flag meant. They took it up themselves and they gave it meaning that they wanted in the streets on May Day. Donna, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Donna Haverty-Stack is author of the book America's Forgotten Holiday, May Day and Nationalism, 1867 to 1960. Now, you may have heard us mention Aaron Copeland's Into the Streets May 1st when our producer and WNYC's archivists went hunting for it to use in the segment... They came up empty. It seems it has never been professionally recorded since it was first published in the 1935 Workers' Songbook. And in a moment, you'll hear why. It invokes hammers and sickles, and also it's really hard to sing. But we decided to record it ourselves with the able assistance of our own producer, John Hanrahan, and WNYC engineer, Irene Trudell. Thanks also to Karen Frillman and Jim O'Grady, who lent their voices to our chorus. And without further ado, we present Into the Streets, May 1st. for listening to our midweek podcast. You can catch the big show on Friday. It's usually posted around dinner time. Check out On the Media's newsletter and just thanks. <laughs> <laughs>